0: Welcome to the Kesset Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us and hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you'd like to find out more about Kesset, you can head to QuesadChurch.com or find us on Facebook. Good morning, Kesset Church. I am so happy to be here with you on this last Sunday, not just of 2019, but of the whole decade. Can you believe that? For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ronnie Sasaki, and I claim Chesed as my home church. I'm a member of the worship team, and every once in a while when our pastors are gone, they let me speak. Danny is off um, enjoying some badly needed rest, and Pastor Chris is actually waiting for his baby to be born, which is, well, he's here today, so it hasn't been born yet. It's, I think it's kind of like watching paint dry, you know? Those last few days leading up to the due date is just like, ugh. When's it gonna happen? But I'm sure it will happen anytime soon, although I don't think anybody ever told Chris and his wife that when you have a baby somewhere near Christmas, it's kind of a big bummer because it's really hard to celebrate their birthday. If they did know this, they didn't listen to any of the advice. So anyway, we, and all that is having said is, is the reason that I get to be here with you and I'm always so thrilled to be able to share with you what God has laid on my heart. So let's just take a moment and pray for our time together this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, We come to you now with open hearts and and open arms, just ready to receive everything that you have for us this morning. Please bless this time together. Be with our pastors as they are taking some time off and just use this day, this service as transformational in each of our lives. In your holy name, I pray, amen. You know, we've been spending a lot of time in the last few weeks during the holidays looking at these traditions, looking at the things that make up the things that the way we celebrate and in a great part they have a huge influence on the culture in which we live but one thing I've noticed in this whole celebration of Christmas and all of the stories that we share is there's something that we miss you see oftentimes the Christmas story in the church is told from the books of Matthew and in the books of Luke both of these books also include this genealogy of Jesus Matthew puts it before Jesus' birth, and Luke puts it before his ministry begins. I find myself wondering, why do we skip these genealogies? I mean, I've never heard a Christmas song, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, or anything like that. And my dad, he used to, or my grandpa before my dad, used to read the Christmas story when we would gather on Christmas Eve. And it was always from the time that, you know, they found out that Mary was pregnant, but they skip this whole list of Jesus's relatives. And I can't speak for everybody, but I think the reason that we skip it is, number one, it's boring. At least for me it is. You know, as I said, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And And it's not only that it's, it's kind of boring to read through, is their names are really long and really hard to pronounce. I've heard that there's about 25 genealogical listings throughout the Bible, and as I know, for me, I'm reading through. When I come to one of these, I just sort of skim along, get through it as quick as I can, because I want to get to the good stuff. I want to get to the story. And I think that it's kind of interesting that. Biblically, we skip over these things, but on a social, personal, community kind of a level, we really want to know our ancestry, and we really want to know our DNA, so to speak. In fact, those DNA tests, I don't know if any of you got one for Christmas or gave one for Christmas, but I found out that since 2017, purchases of these tests keep doubling every single year. And about 26 million people have voluntarily submitted their DNA in hopes of finding out who they are, what brought them to the place in their life where they are today. Well, about a year ago, well, it was a year ago because it was Christmas time, my daughter Jenny received a 23andMe gift for Christmas. So she did the little swab of her cheek saliva and she mailed it all in. Now, I mentioned that my name is Ronnie Sasaki. Sasaki is a Japanese name and I am married to a Japanese man. So we just assume, because he's Japanese, that her test would be about 50% Japanese. I'm somewhat of a European mutt, so most of my um, ancestors are from Germany and from England. So we figured she'd be about 25% German, 25% English, half Japanese. Well. To our surprise, have you heard of some surprises from some of these tests? She was only about 23% Japanese. So my husband was like, what? What's going on here? So he had to, you know, he had to order his test immediately. When, and then he got it, and it sat on our kitchen counter for like eight months. <laughs> but he finally did his own test, sent it in, because he wanted to get to the bottom of this and figure out what's going on. His birth certificate says that his dad, Ronald Sasaki, is fully Japanese. He was born in Hawaii. His mom, Seiko, she was from Japan, and so she's fully Japanese. So he should be sort of fully Japanese. At least that's what we assume. But the other thing you really should know about my husband is he is an orphan. When he was only 11 years old, all of his parents died. And so there's really not even anybody that he can ask, and sure enough, he gets his test results back, and he is a little bit less than a uh, half Japanese. So it's pretty clear to us, based on this evidence, that there's a good chance that the father who is listed on his birth certificate is probably not his biological father. We may never know the answer to his genealogy. The other thing that I see oftentimes in our families is, in spite of these crazy stories um, from our DNA, is these legends, these stories of the people that we pass on and we tell them when families gather and we bring in you know, other people. We say, hey, well, you, you, know, you need to know this about my family. And Some of them are sort of notorious, and others of them are kind of famous in the things that we're proud of. So we had one of those in my family, We always believed that one of my great-great-great-grandfathers was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And this particular great-great-grandfather's name is George Wythe. And I remember being at my grandmother's house on several different occasions where they actually had a copy of the Declaration of Independence and pulled it out, pointed, okay, here's here's George's name right here. Yep, he is our great-great-grandfather. And then my uncle discovered this article that claimed good old Grandpa George never had any children at all. So totally blew that story right out of the water. The good news is, is my dad did eventually trace um, his genealogical line and my mother's genealogical line, and found that on both sides of my family, we have relatives that came over on the Mayflower. So I think that sort of makes up for the prestige, if you will, of not having a great-great-grandfather who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Hey, I have relatives who came over on the Mayflower. And it's funny because we're, we're sort of obsessed with this, and yet we tend to just skim over Jesus' gene- genealogy. Um, but i got to say that both Matthew and Luke talk about it. They both present it. So I think it has some importance and some significance, and perhaps it's time that we just take a minute to look at the genealogies of Jesus. But I wanted to, first of all, kind of just include something, just a little bit silly, if you will allow, because during the series that Danny talked about, with the tradition, legend, and lore, today is not part of that series, by the way, but but during the series, he got to read uh, like a Little Red Riding Hood story, or the Velveteen Rabbit, or talk about Christmas trees, even Santa Claus he talked about. So, not to feel left out, I began to search for something that I could, a story I could read about genealogies, or something that I could present to you, just in kind of the way of fun along these lines. And the only thing that I could come up with was back in, when my kids were little, and we, they were in their car seats, and we're riding around the car, we would listen to CDs. And we had this one Disney CD, and it had a song on it called, I'm My Own Grandpa that Goofy sang. And as I was reading through some of the stories preparing for this sermon, that song just began began to pop into my mind. And so I thought I would read it to you this morning so that I can kind of keep in line with the tradition, legend, and lore. Now you gotta follow it very carefully because it moves quite fast. Here's how it goes. Many, many years ago when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as can be. This widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her and soon they too were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and really changed my life. For now my daughter was my mother because she was my father's wife. And to complicate the matter, even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad and so he became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he were my uncle, that would also make him brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who was, of course, my stepmother. Father's wife then had a son who kept them on the run, and he became my grandchild, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue, because although she is my wife, she's my grandmother, too. (laughs) Now, if my wife is my grandmother, then I'm her grandchild. And every time I think of it, nearly drives me wild because now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. Now for the rousing chorus. I'm my own grandpa. I'm my own grandpa. It sounds funny, I know. And it really is so. I'm my own grandpa. (laughs) Uh, You know? I'm pretty sure I'm never gonna be asked to sing on the worship team again. (laughs) Certainly never asked to speak again after sharing that. But you know, we all have crazy relatives in our lives, right? Some of our stories might even follow this pretty closely. And I think it's kind of strange when we look at Jesus and we look at his genealogy, his is just as crazy. If I were God, which I'm not, and I think that's probably a really good thing, I would have picked all the people in Jesus' line who were perfect. They were the ones who were the most righteous, the most upstanding citizens, the ones he really would want to talk about and share all their stories and and proclaim, hey, this is my great-great-great-grandfather. And yet what we see when we really start to dig deep into the stories behind his family, it's just the opposite, it's some of these crazy stories. Now, I do want to backtrack just a little bit and and just kind of give you some things that I have learned about these two separate genealogies in Matthew and in Luke um, that kind of are important, I think, to some degree. The thing is, is Luke's starts out with Jesus and goes all the way back through to Adam and then God, whereas Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and it goes forward all the way through to Jesus. Matthew starts his and says, the father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, whereas Luke says, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. But the most significant difference that I notice between these two genealogies is that they are different. One genealogy, Matthew's, it goes through Solomon, David's son, and then on down, whereas Luke's genealogy, goes from David to Nathan, one of his other sons, and then works his way on down. Now, I did a lot of research trying to figure out this discrepancy, and what I found out is most Bible scholars believe that one of these is the genealogy of Mary, and one of these is the genealogy of Joseph. Where we do get a little bit of controversy is they don't all agree as to which one as which, which one is which. And um, I think, though, it is important to make a note that in the bible culture during that time the descendancy was almost always through the man now we know after the fact of course that mary is jesus's biological mother but joseph is not jesus's biological father so i guess in a way jesus has something in common with my husband because the name on his birth certificate is not who his actual father is We know his father to be God, right? But how in the world were Mary and Joseph going to explain this when Jesus is growing up out in the community? I think it was probably a lot easier. They knew the truth. But everybody in the community just assumed that Joseph was his father. In fact, Luke 3.23 says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it thought, of Joseph. The son of Healy. And then in John 6 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now, I have come down from heaven? See, it's very important because of of who Jesus is and was that we do look at his genealogy. You see, there were so many. Prophecies and promises leading up to the Messiah and Jesus as the Messiah. We get to prove a lot through His genealogy that He is the one that has been talked about for all of these hundreds of years. And in Matthew one one, He is called the Son of David. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Luke three thirty eight says the Son of Adam, the Son of God. So we see through the genealogy of Jesus who he is. It's just like what we like to find out when we see our DNA tests or we see uh, the listing of our own families. We like to find out who we are. And that's what we see in Jesus here. Because you see, as the son of David, it means that Jesus is king. As the son of Abraham, it means that Jesus is a Jew. As the son of Adam, it means that Jesus is man. And as the son of God... It means that Jesus is God. We learn from his genealogy who Jesus is. But there's a whole lot of other names listed in the genealogy. Those people that you've got to wonder about. Why did God choose them to be in Jesus' family line? It makes no sense to me at all. So what I believe is the second thing that we learn about Jesus' genealogy is not only who he is, but who he came to save. Because, you see, as the promised Messiah, Jesus was the one who came, was born to be the redeemer of all mankind, to create that bridge between us and of God. So when we look at all of the other people, we begin to see a pattern of those people that need to be saved now there's something weird i have noticed particularly in matthew's genealogy i don't know am i am i allowed to call things in the bible kind of weird because this just seems to fit right he mentions four women well he actually mentions five one of them is mary mary she gets a lot of coverage during christmas being the mother of jesus i mean she's even a, a nativity figure figurine we learned that last sunday right that she gets she gets a lot of recognition so we're actually not going to look at Mary and her story today but I wanted to look at these four women and it's not just because I'm a woman and I do like to preach about the women in the Bible this is very true but because it is such an anomaly It's one of those things that just typically did not happen. As I mentioned, the descendancy of people were always through the male line. That's who their family lineage was. That's the tribe that they were tied in with. So all of a sudden, Matthew brings in these four women, and I have got to wonder why. So I'm going to read part of the genealogy for you. Please don't fall asleep. It's just only three verses of it, so I think we can all endure it. But it's where we hear about these four women and it's Matthew 1 verse 3 Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar first woman Perez the father of Hezron Hezron the father of Ram Ram the father of Amminadab hopefully I'm saying that right Amminadab the father of Nashon Nashon the father of Salmon Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab second woman Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, third woman. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, we don't get her name, had been Uriah's wife. The mother of Solomon and Uriah's wife was Bathsheba. So there we have the four women. What about them? made them worthy of mention. Well, I do find some commonalities among them. All four were outsiders. Canaanite, Moabite, even Bathsheba was married to a Hittite man. So they were outsiders. Three of them were guilty of sexual sins. And even Ruth, who seems pretty, pretty straight up, she was, she was a, a Moabite, so she probably had worshipped idols at some point in her life all had suffered great loss and yet each in her own way god used her story he used her life to somehow impact the future impact the life of jesus significantly impacting the course of history if you will and all four of these women were in desperate need of saving so i thought We could just touch upon their stories very briefly here we could pick any of the names in jesus's genealogy we just don't have time so i wanted to really focus on these four women and see what we can learn from them and how it applies to the genealogy of jesus the first was tamar her story is found in genesis 38 and tamar was a canaanite woman she was married to judah's son now the thing that's so interesting about this story is If you know anything about the history of the Israelites, this story of Tamar falls right in the middle of the story about Joseph. If I were God, I would have picked Joseph to be in the family line. I mean, he was the darling of the family. He was sold into slavery. He goes to Egypt. And he, he rises to a high level. The man has all his integrity. He rises to leadership. He ends up saving his whole family. So the, the end of Genesis is all about Joseph and all the good that he has done in spite of the things that were stacked against him. And in the middle of it all is like a break. Stop! Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we're going to talk about Judah now. Judah was not the firstborn. He wasn't exceptional of one of the sons. And yet, we, we have this story now about Judah. Tamar was actually Judah's son, or daughter-in-law. He married his son, Ur. I can say that one, Ur, E-R, Ur. And Ur was a wicked man. So the Bible says that God killed him. So during the, uh, uh, keeping him with the customs of that time, Tamar then married Er's brother, Onan, It was Onan's job to provide an heir to Tamar, which would actually be his brother's heir. But he didn't want to fulfill his duty, so he did not. He was also an evil man, so again, the Bible says that God killed him. This woman just cannot win. Not only is she married to two evil men, but God kills them both. Now, Judah has a third son. His name is Shelah, but he's just a young boy. So Judah tells Tamar, says, why don't you go ahead and go back home to your parents and wait for Shayla to grow up. And as soon as he grows up, I'll send him to you. You can marry him, and he will provide you with the required heir. Well, she does exactly that, and she waits. Shayla grows up, but somehow Judah backs out on his deal. Perhaps he thought, you know, she's been married to my two sons, and they both died. I don't want to give her my third son and have him die too. So he backed out on his deal for whatever reason. Meanwhile, Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. So she hears that Judah is going to be traveling down this road. She dresses up as a prostitute. She plants herself alongside of the path where she knows that he's going to be traveling. Sure enough, he comes along and he sees her. I told you, these people are not perfect in Jesus' line. He decides to partake of her services. So they negotiate a price and they agree upon a goat. Well, Judah just doesn't happen to have a goat tucked away in his back pocket, so he gives her his signet, his cord, and his staff, sort of as a marker for her to keep until the required goat can be delivered. So they have their meeting. They go their separate ways. Soon, Tamar discovers that she is pregnant from their encounter. Now. Judah's servants then try to find this prostitute because they want to give her the goat. They want to get Judah's items back. And they find out that there is no such prostitute that they know of who has has ever worked along that road, so they cannot find her. Meanwhile, word gets out in the entire community that Tamar is pregnant. Judah hears about it, and he is mad. He believes that she has been playing the harlot which, of course, is because she has been. So she is brought before him. He wants to have her burned as punishment until she pulls out his cord, his signet, and his staff. And then Judah does the manly thing, and he admits that he is the father of her child, and he steps up. To the plate and he does what he needs to do and in genesis 38 26 he says she is more righteous than i since i did not give her to my son Shelah." she ends up having twins perez and Zerah. now something you should know that that judah's father when he was in his deathbed he had 12 sons he produ he gives each of these sons a blessing and when he comes to judah this is what he says in genesis 49 Nine through ten. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus was from the lineage of Judah. And how many times have you heard us say jesus is the lion of judah unlikely people who would have picked judah who would have picked tamar to be in the family the second woman is rahab the bible says right up front rahab was a prostitute now she lived in the city of jericho and jericho was the first city that the israelites were going to take over as god was moving them from the wilderness into the promised land Joshua was the leader at this time, and he decided to send two spies into the city of Jericho just to scope things out. The two spies go to the local inn so they can get some food and they can kind of get a feel for the city and everything that's going on. Well, the inn is owned by the prostitute Rahab. Now, I guess because of all of the services that she provided, it was not uncommon for men to frequently be coming and going from her home. So the guards began to get word, though, that there was strangers that had been seen in Rahab's house. Now, you've got to think, the Israelites were a crowd of people just across the Jordan River of about two to three million people. Their fame preceded them into this city. And I'm pretty sure that Rahab saw the writing on the wall. They're going to come over here. They're going to conquer our city. We're all going to be killed. So she decided to strike up a bargain with these two spies, and she said to them, I'll tell you what, if you will save me, then I will save you. Furthermore, she obviously had to have heard about all of the miracles that their God had done on their behalf over all these years as they were in the wilderness. And she might have been thinking, man, if I'm going to put in with anybody, I want to put in with that God that does all those great things for those people. So she struck this bargain, the guards came, she had hidden the two spies up on the roof underneath underneath all the flax leaves. When the guards left, she took the spies and she says, I want you to go up into the hills, and there's caves up there, and you can hide for three days. And after three days, when the search has died down, then you can return to your people. And then they said to her, okay, Rahab, we'll do that. What we want you to do is hang out the window, down the wall, a red cord. And anybody that you gather into your home, when we come and we invade your city, seeing that red cord, we will keep you safe. And so that's exactly what happened. You know the story. The Israelites marched around the city of Jericho for six days. And on the seventh day, they blew the trumpet. The walls came tumbling down. And Rahab and her family were spared. Joshua 6.17 says, Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. You see, Rahab ended up marrying a guy named Salmon. And Bible historians that I've read say that they believe Salmon was one of the spies who she hid, which is kind of a sweet love story, don't you think? But even more impressive to me in the course of history is Salmon is the man who was the founding father of the city of Bethlehem, the city where Jesus was born. Very unlikely people once again, not only an outsider, started her life out as a prostitute. Again, what was Jesus thinking or what was God thinking? We move on to the story of Ruth and I love this story because it's a really, really sweet love story. And Ruth actually has her own chapter of the Bible, book of the Bible, that is all about her story. But it begins with Naomi. Naomi and her husband and two sons, they leave Bethlehem because of a famine. So they go out to to Moab in order to get food and to live. As soon as they arrive in the strange land, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons then marry Moabite women. And they all live, happily I assume, for ten years or so. At the end of 10 years, the two sons die, leaving three widows virtually destitute because Naomi is not from there, so she does not have any relatives that are nearby that can support these three women. So she decides to return to her homeland. She tries to encourage her two daughters-in-law to go back to their families, but they decide to travel with her. Early in the journey, Orpah, so the two sons marry Orpah and Ruth. Orpah decides, you know what, this journey is just a little too tough for me. I think I'm gonna go ahead and do what she said. I'm gonna go back to my family. But Ruth decides to hang with Naomi and continue on. And we read one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Ruth 1:16. but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. She was willing to leave everything that she knew so that she could embrace this God that Naomi had. When they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth is sent into the fields to begin gleaning grain so that they have food to eat. She's a very beautiful woman. She catches the eye of Boaz, who is an older, wealthy man, He then gives her special gleaning privileges and she's allowed to move from all of the different fields so that she can gather enough food for her and Naomi. Naomi is a pretty smart woman. She sees a little bit of attraction going on here between Ruth and Boaz. So she devises a plan so that Boaz will take a little bit fonder notice of Ruth. So at the end of the day, when he is going to sleep on the threshing floor, Naomi tells Ruth to get dressed up in her best, nicest clothing, bathe, put on perfume, get all dolled up. She then instructs Ruth to go and curl up at Boaz's feet. Boaz is sleeping, but all of a sudden he wakes up and realizes that there is a woman at his feet. And he's surprised, and he asks, what's going on here? So Ruth explains to him, that he is a relative of theirs, and as such, he can be the redeemer because there was some family land that her husband owned, and he could redeem that as a relative. And she says, not only could you get the land, but it's like a two-for-one bargain. You could get me as a wife along with it. Well, Boaz says, "Oh." Sounds like a pretty good plan to me. And he goes goes along the proper channels, of course. And then he finally agrees to claim the land and claim Ruth as his wife. And they had a son. His name is Obed. Obed became the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Do you see a pattern here of how things just keep all fitting together together? As we lead up to Jesus. And then the fourth one is Bathsheba. I probably don't even need to tell you her story because it's so famous. And I think the reason her story is so famous is because it involved King David's sin. King David was like a great guy. From the time he was really young, he had a heart for God, he had integrity. He always seemed to do the right thing. And because of that, God made him king. God gave him great victory in many battles. He allowed the, the people to really rise in status and stature at the, under the leadership of King David. But what happens is one day when all of the troops are out to war, David decides to stay home. And he's in the palace, and he's looking down at the city all around him because he's up on a hill, and he can see the rooftop where Bathsheba is bathing. And he has a desire for her. So he has his servants bring her to him. Because he's the king, he can pretty much do whatever he wants. And after their encounter, she goes back home and she discovers that she is pregnant with David's child. Well, in Leviticus 20.10, it says that both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. David knows this, of course, and so he devises a scheme to kind of hide the sin. So he brings Uriah and his troops back in from the battlefield with hopes of having Uriah go home to his wife and spending the night with her so they could say that the baby was her husband's. The problem was is Uriah was a very upstanding man, very honorable to his troops, and he decided that since they're sleeping out in the field, he doesn't want the comforts of home. He decides to stay out in the field with his troops instead of sleeping with his wife. So plan A of David's is foiled. So plan B is put into effect. So David then sends a message to put Uriah in the front line where the thickest and the heaviest of the battle is going on, where he knows, pretty sure, that there's a good chance Uriah will be killed. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed in battle, David then takes as his wife now they have a son but the son dies they then have a second son and his name is solomon solomon is one of the most famous kings in the bible as well very wise man we know that he built the temple so we have four women four stories and i just got to say what was god thinking But he chose some of these people. I can't speak for God either, but I think perhaps what he was thinking was they were all just like us, in desperate need of saving. And perhaps he was thinking, this is why I'm sending a Savior. Because you all need to be saved. Matthew Henry put it this way. He says, but God will show that his choice is of grace, not of merit, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. When we began to look in detail at Jesus' family tree, we realized they're not just a list of names that are hard to pronounce. One after the other, we see a story, a life, a piece of the history that come to play and all come together so that when Jesus is born, he is the proclaimed Messiah. Within his family, we see these kind of people, adulterers, prostitutes, cheaters, liars, outsiders, young, old, heroes, prisoners, murderers, thieves, doubters, losers, winners, failures, righteous, lost, paupers, and idol worshipers. And the list could just keep going on and on. It's so Oftentimes it's easy or fun, I guess, if you want to call it that, for us to look back at our history. Look at what made us who we are today, what maybe even brought us here today as the person that we are in this moment in time. But my question for you is, who do you want to be in 2020? You know, like, like Ruth and like Rahab, they said, I want to put in with God. I've seen what God can do. I want to put in with him, changing the course of their lives. All these women were sinners, just like we are. See, we learn who Jesus is from his genealogy. He is perfect, this man, this king, this Jew, and God. And we also learn who he came to save. It's all the imperfect, all of the sinners, all of the outsiders. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son as sons in just a few moments we're going to take communion together as a family i don't want to ask you whose family are you going to throw in with you don't have to wait till new year's eve for 2020 you can start right now communion is a beautiful thing that we as as believers we who have already chosen to be in god's family to be adopted as his son or his daughter we get to partake of the bread we get to partake of the the wine or the juice in this case and we remember jesus is our redeemer the sacrifice that he made of giving his body so that we could be his child some of you in this room may not have made that choice i'm going to tell you right now it is not an exclusive club Jesus is sitting at the table saying, come to my table. Now, I know some of you, when you gather as a family during the holidays, it's pretty great when you have all your family at the table. And then there's some of you others who, man, it's just hard. So-and-so is difficult. So-and-so drinks too much. This is just, well, I'm glad we only have to get together once a year. But Jesus' table is different because he's got this beautiful plan and he wants to be your father. Your family lineage gets to include being a child of God. He's saying, come, come to my table. I have a chair for you. So let's pray right now, because I want to invite those of you who are in this room, not sure whose family you're going to put in with, that just maybe you consider opening up your heart to this Jesus, this baby that was born on Christmas. Because he came to save us as we see from this long line of people that preceded him that were so imperfect, just like we are. Dear Heavenly Father, I just wanna come to you today and I just invite those who are in this room who may be not one of your children yet and ask that they pray this prayer with me dear heavenly father I just I want you to come into my heart I'm a sinner Jesus and I want you to forgive my sins I want you to be my redeemer today so that from this moment forward I am a child of God adopted son or daughter into your family And I know, Lord, that by asking simply, you are going to come into my heart and forgive me of my sins and make me that child of yours. In your holy name we pray, amen.